everybody. Thank you. Guys, I, really, it, it, I don't know if you guys have ever been down here looking up, but it, it's slightly freaky. I, I, I feel it's at the back row. If you lean forward too far, you will fall on me. It's, it's scary enough speaking at Sydney Uni um, with the brightest people in the country. Um, uh, let alone... Uh, in a building shaped like this. Did you know, by the way, um, if you're at the back, did you know there were, there were donuts down the front row? I'm just saying. <laughs> it's awesome. I'm coming back, but front row only, I'm just saying. Um, Hugh, thanks uh, for the introduction. Um, uh, as uh, he said, yeah, I'm the, uh, the pastor of a church down the road, uh, just down the side of the footbridge, really. Um, that's that's kind of all. It's kind of, I think it's nice to know a little bit about a speaker, just get where they're coming from. Um, uh, I'm married. I'm married to Fiona, who is totally out of my league. Um, uh, I have uh, I have four absolutely rocking kids: uh, Susanna, uh, Rose, Hugh, and Toby, aged six, four, two, and one. Yeah, um, very very cool kids. I was um <laughs> I was walking up the stairs the other day with Huey because you know he's he's kind of still you know wears a nappy and you know, has the issues that come with that. Um, uh, he actually just done a poo in his nappy and we're walking up and he pauses and he looks up at me and he says, Daddy, my poo is like chocolate juice. <laughs> Which was like totally cool except that Fee was making chocolate fondue for dinner that night and I, I was so put off. Uh, um, fans, anyone? Oh yeah, yeah, it was, it was very exciting. Um, <laughs> my, my eldest daughter, Susanna, is just so in for MasterChef. Uh, we don't actually have a TV, not because we're Luddites, but we just kind of stream video every now and again. But she got so totally hooked on MasterChef that recently we'd gone for a drive up the coast to Byron Bay. And inland of Byron Bay is a little town called Bangalore, which is foodie heaven. And there's a great restaurant there called Sadie 8. And uh, I actually, with a, a little discussion with Fee, I took Susanna, my six-year-old daughter, for a five-course degustation. Because all holidays she'd been plating up, like, you know, plating up, uh, you know, little snips of paper and plasticine and it tasted crap. So I thought I'd take her out and show her what the real deal was. The chef came out afterwards to meet the six-year-old who'd loved the kingfish caviche. It's a crazy world. Uh, friends, thank you so much for uh, having me here. Thanks for being here. Uh, I want to say particularly, if you're someone here and you're here because you're exploring the claims uh, of Jesus that shape the EU, that shape your Christian friends, look, particularly welcome to you. Uh, I'm going to hang around afterwards. If you want to come and say hello, uh, I'd love to meet you. I, I, I don't have a lot of answers, but I'll give it a shot if you want to ask the question. Um, I'd love to meet you afterwards if you want to have a chat. Um, because I think we're wrestling with what really is uh, the, the beautiful heart of Christianity today. Uh, I really mean the beautiful heart. Uh, that makes it, a, I think, a really... Um, Difficult topic too, because it's a strange heart to many of us, and also it's a deeply confronting heart. Before I get on to that though, I'd just like to point out to you that um, thousands upon thousands of people have died for me. I know, looking at me, you can understand that. (laughs) Bronzed, five foot ten, Adonis-like sun god that I am. Uh, And the truth is though, uh, that... Thousands of people, possibly even millions, depending on how you count it, have died for you too. Have you ever thought about life that way? 
It does depend how you count it, but like we could start with the Anzacs, for example. We always do in Australia, uh, so why not today? They died on the shores of Gallipoli, a lot of other places too. And sure, they probably didn't have you specifically in mind, fair to say. But many of them at that time were thinking about Australia and uh, about Australians in general, our way of life and our freedoms. Now, uh, admittedly, they didn't go over there to die. That wasn't their plan. They went to fight. And they did go to kill, we're totally honest, and dying was really an accidental, tragic, terrible byproduct of that intent. In fact, look, if we're really honest, uh, we know that dying that we so celebrate was actually in every case a, a failure of their success in killing, of their fight for this country. I come from three generations of uh, military officers, uh, my granddad, a great-granddad and so on, um, and one of the things I've learned from them is that the whole point of war is, is not to die. Uh, when one of your soldiers is killed, it's actually uh, a loss because they can't fight anymore. Uh, but with all these caveats aside, it's fair to say that when the Anzacs did die, they died in some sense for you. And I, I, don't, I don't think that we're wrong in thinking there's something kind of special about that. I don't think there's a problem with that. But I think it does raise another question, which is this. What's so special about Jesus' death? I mean, if so many people have died for you, what's so special about that death of one man rather than the thousands and the millions of men and women who have died in some sense for you? And there is, by the way, uh, no doubt indeed that Jesus did die. There is a scholarly consensus in the world today which presents a remarkable 180-degree turn from the opinion about 100 years ago. Modern scholarship is pretty much agreed that there was a person called Jesus. Both conservatives and liberal New Testament scholars would agree that there was someone called Jesus uh, who did indeed die on a cross, who was buried in the tomb of a man called Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, he was, uh, after his, his, the consequence of his death, was that it drove his disciples to despair. And that his disciples, though surprisingly subsequently, did in fact claim that they had seen him that he had appeared to them in some way and it changed their life forever. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, what you draw from it, well, that's a different discussion altogether. But Jesus lived and Jesus died. But that's not the same thing as saying that Jesus' death means anything at all. So what if he died? Uh, so what if he didn't just die? So what if he died for us? And the Anzacs died for us, but apart from sporadic observation of an annual religious ceremony and a new language of almost religious nationalism employed regularly by our political leaders when they want to get the vote, uh, there's kind of nothing in that for us. Uh, I doubt, to be perfectly honest, and I say this as a son of military generations, I really doubt that the death of the Anzacs for you actually makes all that much difference. And so why should Jesus' death in fact, it's interesting that in the passage we had read for us so clearly, uh, even the great apostle Paul, someone who uh, was convinced against his will that Jesus had died for him, acknowledges that there's nothing essentially impressive in the idea that someone dies for us, except that it's something for which we might honour them. He says, verse 7, the middle sentence we looked at, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Someone might possibly dare to die for a good person, he says. Uh, why don't we actually, do you want to stick that up in the overhead so it's up there for people to see? People have in fact 
dared to die. I'm sorry, did I get you out of your chair, Hugh? <laughs> That's I excellent. Ready to go, so. <laughs> Excellent. Actually, that's fine. We don't need it after it. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I'm a dad with kids. You know, um, I have a certain morbid imagination and so I have a dying for them a number of times. People have dared to die, in fact, for other human beings again and again and again and many of them have died in a sense for you too. So I reckon the title of this talk should not be uh, What If Jesus Died For You, but So What If Jesus Died For You. Uh, today, however, I'd like to share with you that So What. And for whatever difference it makes, I don't think it's a So What uh, which can be ignored uh, or taken, at least in some sense, seriously. The So What, uh, I'm going to try to ask, express in three truths. And I do apologise in advance if I do this a little bit clumsily or badly. The first truth is this. Uh, we need rescuing. We need rescuing. Uh, this is not uh, rescuing in the sense of some people, you look around, particularly they're in engineering or IT, and you look at them and you say, wow, that guy really needs to be rescued. That's not what I'm telling you about here. Uh, I will try to work around all the faculties. If I miss one out, do let me know afterwards. <laughs> I take it, by the way, that the fact we need rescuing is somehow implied, even if it's not necessarily believed, it's implied by the language of Jesus died for us. Um, you don't die for someone in order to get them the title of uh, yeah, Master Chef. Um, uh, or, for example, uh, to get on the funniest home videos. You die for someone, I take it, uh, not that I've ever tried it personally, uh, because in some sense, they need rescuing. You know, it's that implicit transaction, that exchange thing. You with me so far? I didn't think that's particularly complicated. Um, and Jesus, Jesus died for us, we read. Uh, you die for someone that, you need, uh, that needs saving, so the question then follows is, uh, what is it that we could possibly need saving for? I and mean, we are a generation in a part of the world which is rich and successful and safe and secure and comfortable and healthy and wise and clever, uh, what could we possibly need saving for? The, the first and third sentences of the passage which was read uh, begin this answer, uh, Christ died for the ungodly, we're told. Uh, or, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now I get to this point for some of you, I have blown my cover. Uh, this is the language that you suspected to hear in a Christian gathering and kind of hope not to hear, but I've just confirmed all your fears and suspicions by using this medieval language of ungodly and sinners and right now you're hoping that you can subtly pull out your iPhone and play Angry Birds and no one will notice. Because <laughs> right, you've already worked out, you know how I'm going to employ these labels, don't you, of sinner and ungodly. On the one hand, there's going to be the sinners, okay? And the sinners will be those people who like sex, Drugs and heavy metal. <laughs> if they're really bad, they'll like rap. <laughs> and Jesus doesn't like them because they're sinners. And that's what sinners means. On the other hand, there will be the religious people, the righteous people. And these righteous religious people, they go to church, they say their prayers, they help old ladies across the road, they iron their jeans, they never, ever... <laughs> Never, ever watch Gossip Girl. 
And Jesus can't stand them because they are so unbelievably boring, but he's Jesus and he doesn't get to choose his own groupies. <laughs> You've worked out already where I'm going. I want to suggest that there is a problem with assuming that that's where I'm going because that's not where Jesus goes. In another place and in a number of times, Jesus says, speaking to religious people, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus has often been called in history the friend to sinners. Perhaps the most surprising of all is that Jesus is actually hated in his day by many of the most religious people because he hangs out with those whom they call sinners. He has awesome parties with lots and lots of booze and hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors and if they're around lawyers too, I suspect. <laughs> Arts? So, I know, I'm just working out who I've got, let's go. Um, the Apostle Paul whose letter we're reading right now, a man who uh, in his upbringing and in his adulthood was the most diligent of Jews, uh, the most religious of men, who faithfully, religiously obeyed all of the rules and tenets of his religion, um, he includes himself in this group as he writes to a church. He says, while we were still sinners. As he writes for an audience like you and I, he says, while we were still sinners, and he includes him a thoroughly religious person in that category because in the end the, the whole testimony of Jesus of all of his followers of the Bible of the whole of God himself is that there are no two categories in humanity there's no two types of people there's just us and Jesus calls us sinners and Jesus is on for sinners he came for sinners. He hung out with sinners. He wept for sinners. Now this term sinner, by the way, um, is not so much about actions as it's about relationship, right? Uh, you're not a sinner uh, because you choose to stay up all night eating a whole tub of chocolate ice cream while watching The Big Loser. Okay? <laughs> that's, that's not what's meant by sinner. Uh, Rather, a sinner is it's a relational label. It's kind of a category label. Um, sinners, uh, for all of our cultural heritage, which makes us think we know what it means, it really just means uh, people have a particular kind of relationship with God. It's a relational rather than a character label. Uh, the word sinner means someone who has in fact cut themselves off from God and in cutting themselves off from Him, have uh, uh, placed themselves in a relationship which is not just neutral, but actually one of antagonism and antipathy. One time, Jesus is approached by a group of religious types who ask him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment? What is the basic moral burden upon every human being? What is the, the most fundamental thing that God requires of us? And Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. Now, by the way, we love that second bit. 
We live in a culture which just celebrates Jesus at this point. We think it's fantastic that Jesus says that at the heart of religion is his great claim, love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, if we start, it allows us to condemn uh, most religious people uh, because they're clearly not loving their neighbour, they're intolerant and they're bigoted. Uh, the, I've lost count of times when I've read a letter writer in the City Morning Herald who uh, articulates so wonderfully and clearly that view that the central tenet of Christianity is that you ought to be kind to other people and to puppies. <laughs> now, that's good as far as it goes, right? That is clearly at the heart of Jesus' take on what it means to love God. And in fact, it's certainly the heart of his uh, attacks and challenges of very religious people. But at the same time, I want you to notice that it is also a very convenient statement of ignorance, a dangerous half-truth, because it is the second commandment to which he refers And the first one is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In other words, the basic expectation that God has of every person because he has created us, because he has breathed life into us, because he has granted us the joys of his world, because he enriches us with just the myriad expressions of his creative genius in, in all of this creation, the, uh, in, in the perfect point breaks of Narrabeen, in the great coffee found in the inner west and almost nowhere else. The basic moral burden that God places on every person is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and how are you doing with that today? I ask you on behalf of Jesus, echoing his words, how are you doing with that? How are you going with that great project of responding to God's invitation and loving him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind? We're called to love him with everything we've got going. I ask again, how are you doing with that? Because me, personally, I'm not going so great. I'm not doing so well at loving God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind because I spend a fair amount of that energy I'd otherwise devote to that great project to loving myself. I'm pretty good at looking after myself. I'm pretty good at reacting negatively to people's demands on me, to hoarding my precious and limited resources to make sure that I am going okay rather than needy out there. I'm pretty good actually about thinking in my head about others in a way which is savage and brutal and selfish. I'm pretty good at all those things. How are you going? At loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Loving your neighbour as yourself. Jesus' teaching is that it is this very failure to respond rightly to God that cuts us off from him, that breaks the connection, that makes us what he calls sinners. People who are disconnected uh, from him and therefore from the source of life, uh, from their reason for being and worse, are people who, are because they are disconnected from God, who have refused to give their love to him and instead devote it to themselves, people who have become the focus of his anger. For the time will come, the Bible is very clear, that God will actually hold us to account, every single one of us. That 
He will hold us to account for the way in which we have related to him and he will judge us justly and that at the judgment of God no human being can stand. This idea, I think, of a judging God is somewhat unfashionable today, it's fair to say, is it not? We say, how is it possible? (coughs) How on earth is it possible that a God who loves could possibly be a God who judges? And of course, as usual for our generation, we've got those two things entirely the wrong way around. What we should be asking is, how is it possible that a God who loves could not judge? For who else but God will stand in and act and defend the interests of the poor and the powerless and the invisible? Who else but God? Who else who sees what happens in the darkness when the great corporations send out their mercenaries to execute entire villages of people in sub-Saharan Africa as they search for oil and for gems and for gold? Who will stand for them? Who will bring justice in the end? I think we're caught in this bind because deep down we get that it would be wrong for those who are weak and who are fragile for uh, the teenage prostitutes of Thailand to vanish from the scenes and the courts of justice forever because they are so small that they have no voice. We understand that it is wrong that a Western man from Sydney should be able to go over and abuse five-year-olds for his sexual pleasure. We understand that something must be done, but when it comes to actually the issue of things being done, we recall because we know that if God judges justly, then he must also judge us. Friends, this is a particularly Western conceit. We are the only society who are appalled at the idea of God who judges. And there's no particular reason why our Western take on this should be definitive or normative for the truth. There are other societies who are much more freaked out about the uh, the God who exercises mercy and forgiveness. And frankly, this is what we would expect. If a God exists who is uh, all-powerful, who created all things, who is therefore transcultural, we would expect that he would offend all of us in some way. Because all of us in our various cultural manifestations have expressed impartially, improbably and dubiously the various moral foundations for the universe. And so the Bible speaks unashamedly of a God who judges, who will judge us. And so we need rescuing. Can I suggest that was my first truth and by far the longest. I hope you're relieved by that. And there is, of course, a second implication for what it means when Jesus dies for us. Um, It is not only that we need rescuing, but that we can't rescue ourselves. This is kind of obvious, by the way. I get that it's implied, the idea of rescue. When you're rescued, you're not doing it yourself. Someone does it for you. Um, When you are rescued, someone does it for you. But Paul goes further just to make it absolutely clear. He says in the first sentence that we looked at, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. I don't think it sits very well with us middle class moderns to consider ourselves powerless. Now, to be honest, there is no more powerful generation than us in all the history of the world. I have the power to choose any one of 30 different shampoos down at my local cobs. I shall wield my power with joy and vigour. I shall slash through the lines of shampoo and choose the one which only I shall have. (laughs) Power. We are the control generation. Um, The Australian philosopher Peter Singer has described us as the era which privileges two things, the maximisation of choice and the minimisation of suffering. And I hope you can see that both of ours, those are all about the assumption that we have the power to control what affects us. We assume that we have the power to control our circumstances. 
Though, of course, those of us who are lost, have lost uh, loved ones, uh, who are struck by illness, who have been affected by global financial crises, know what a silly little illusion this is that only people who revel in the luxury of 30 different kinds of shampoo could ever maintain. In particular, we are powerless in our ability to set the terms of our relationship with God. Because Jesus is clear that we have a debt of love to him, a debt of love not given, a debt of love owed, which we cannot pay back. And I think we find this hard to accept. And so what I'm going to do is, if you don't mind, I'm just going to take a, a slightly different angle to help explore this for a moment. Why it is it that we can't rescue ourselves? There's a bottle of water here. Does this belong to anyone? I'm going to take my risk and drink some. I'm full text here, more or less. If I drop dead in a few moments, someone can just step in and the talk. <laughs> I want to place this from a slightly different perspective. Um, <laughs> uh, there is a wonderful, wonderful story in the Scriptures. Uh, in, uh, it's echoed in a couple of different Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, but my favourite is the way in which it's recorded, the particular narrative style of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, and it's about uh, Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. Uh, on the night before Jesus is executed, he goes to a hill, to a garden whose name is Gethsemane. I like the fact that the garden has a name. There's something evocative about that. And in that place, he takes his closest friends and he leaves them and he asks them to pray for him. They keep on falling asleep time after time. And he too prays. Uh, what we kind of see in the garden is this, this wrestle between God and his Father as they... They just engage. Jesus falls on his knees before his father, knowing what must come tomorrow. And he says, Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. Uh, he's talking about what he's going to do on the cross. For on the cross, Jesus goes to deal with that debt of love, to take God's anger, which we deserve, upon himself. And he calls it, echoing an Old Testament theme, he calls it a cup of wine that he'll drink. And he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. He prays this prayer three times. I encourage you to go and read the story. It is beautiful and it's moving uh, and it's powerful and it's true. And as he prays this prayer, it's like we're listening to one side of a phone call. I don't know if you've ever had the experience. I'm, how can you not? With the proliferation of mobile phones and ignorant bores who insist on speaking on the phone and the carriage and the bus and all the rest of it. So you've had this experience many times when you hear one side of the phone calls. You know, someone going, what? Are you sure that's what that lump is? <laughs> yeah, weird conversations, right? <laughs> this is not one of those conversations. It is a beautiful conversation. As we hear Jesus praying with his Father, asking for a response, and in the end the response is the silence of negation as Jesus says, Rise, come, my betrayer is now here. Jesus has repeatedly prayed for it to his Father, if there is any other way, uh, the reason I tell this story is this. Um, I have four children whom I love. I've told you about this. Uh, last night, Huey uh, woke up in the middle of the night. Uh, he had a bad dream. I heard him crying. I went and picked him up and I had the terrible burden of taking him into bed and cuddling him and falling asleep with his head on my chest and his little hand curled in my fingers. <sighs> I love being a dad. I love my son. 
He is one of the great joys of my life. And if, for example, he were in this room here with us, and the ground fell up beneath us, leaving a huge and enormous chasm, and you were dangling by your fingertips around the edges, and Huey too was there amongst you, holding on for sheer life, and you were calling out, because somehow, miraculously, I, little man that I am, standing on the edge, I'm there, and you say, please, Mike, help us, help us. And I, well, I'm, I'm a kindly soul, I'm not going to walk away, I might like extend the chair to you or something like that to help you get out of the hole, but then Huey has one word. Daddy. Now, you guys are nice people, I'm sure. <laughs> but at that point, you have ceased to exist for me. For he is my son, the son I love. And Jesus is repeatedly spoken of in the scriptures as the son, the son whom God loves. And do you think that God would allow the son, the son whom he loves, to go to the cross in a place of us, strangers to him and rebels? Do you think he would allow his son to die a horrific, tortuous, executed death, betrayed by his friends, abandoned by his followers, in shame, in agony? Do you think God would allow that to happen if there was any other way? Really? If we could rescue ourselves, if some other religion would get us through the door, do you think God would let his son die? If you could just pray five times a day, if you could simply be kind to people or have the right relationship with your priest, do you think God would have sent his son, Jesus Christ, and allowed him to die if there was any other way? What kind of God do you think he is? Do you think he is a cosmic child abuser who sends his son to the cross because it's fun? Because it's convenient, because it makes a nice aesthetic statement for generations of Westerners to wear around their their necks. Do you think that's why he did it? Or do you think God allowed his son to go to the cross because there is no other way for you and I to be rescued? Thirdly, the third truth is this. Let me pause for a moment. I think we've understood two things so far. Uh, Firstly, that the united claim of the scriptures, the teaching of Jesus, the claim of Paul, is that we need rescuing. Okay? That's the first part. The second part is this. The only way for us to be rescued is for Jesus to come and rescue us by dying on the cross. But I don't think we've still answered the question yet. We still haven't worked out why Jesus would do it. I just think about it for a moment. If the problem is that we've rebelled against God, why would God give up the only person left who loves him for those who've rebelled against him? God is not fooled by our carefully manicured exteriors, by our positioning and our self-presentation in our crowds and even in private. God knows every thought that we have ever entertained. God knows every movement of our hearts. No one knows me or knows you like God. No one knows my darkest moments or my cherished hates or my nurtured lusts or my careless indifference. No one knows me like God. Not even me. And yet the stuff I know about myself, frankly, at one level makes me fearful of God knowing it too. For the one in whom I totally must depend to rescue me, and the only one who can save me knows me like that, what chance do I have? 
And yet, the final sentence, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, God died for us. Christ died for us, sorry. Why did Jesus die for you? Because God, knowing you as a sinner, sent his son to die for you at that moment. It wasn't on a day that you looked your best. Maybe you were going to a wedding and had your hair done nicely and polished shoes. It wasn't on that day that God decided to send his son for you. It wasn't on the day that you actually managed to get a whole string of moral wins, you know. You got up at breakfast and you weren't grumpy with anyone. Okay, you went out of the road and someone asked you for money and you only had a 50 and you gave it to them. You didn't exam and you didn't cheat one bit. You didn't even look at the stuff you had written on your arm. It was amazing. <laughs> you had this day of wins. And let me tell you, that is not the day that God chose to send His Son for you. The day God sent His Son for you was the day that He knew you were still a sinner. And He did it because though He knows you and me through and through, He loves us. And I don't know about you, but that blows me away. Because it means that God loves me with a love which isn't conditional. It's not like one day God will find out what I'm real. I go, oh, I'm sorry, it was a huge mistake. He sent his son to die for me and for you when he knew us through and through. And he still loved us because of what Jesus was about to do for us. So, so what if Jesus died for you? So what? If Jesus died for you, then you and I must need rescuing. If Jesus died for you, then the only way for us to be rescued must be his death on our behalf. If Jesus died for you, then the only one who knows you all the way through, through and through, to the inmost part, he chose to love you and to send his son to die for you on the cross. Friends, once upon a time, I was an atheist. Once upon a time, I was distant from God and I did not believe that God loved me or that I needed rescuing, but then I met Jesus and I learned that there is a God who in fact tells me straight that I need to be rescued. There is a God who has the only means to rescue me. There is a God who loves me. And so, because I'm not a complete fool, I became a Christian. What are you going to do? What are you going to do today.